Before we get started this morning, I just, God has been speaking to me just to to say very quick things from his word, and he says comfort, comfort to my people. He tells us in the Psalms that he is close to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. That is his words, that is his promise, and so we can count on it. And then lastly, as we were worshiping this morning, and I was battling with the the tension of the pain and the joy of what Christ has done for her, I, uh, I just kept hearing the words of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Well, good morning. If anyone doesn't know me, uh, my name is Harlan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Billings Vineyard Church. And this morning we are continuing our rest of the story series uh, by looking at the account of Joshua as he led Israel across the Jordan River and into the land that God had promised to Abraham and his children. Tracy, will you bring me a tissue, please? bringing them into that land that God had promised to Abraham and his children, a land flowing with milk and honey. Thank you. A land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance, a land of peace, and a land of rest. A land of inheritance. That's an important word. But as we look at the rest of the story this morning... What we're going to see is that the land of Canaan itself in the Old Testament, um, it was pointing to something bigger. It was a picture of something bigger. It was a picture of the new heaven and new earth that we sang about this morning, that Jesus will usher in at the end of this age. And in that new united heaven and earth, those promised blessings given to Abraham will finally find their substance and their fulfillment. And that long-running promise of God will find its fruition. That God will have a people as his own possession. That he will be their God and he will give, give himself to them as their possession. And he will dwell among them, pouring out his blessing of rest and peace over the entire land. So let's just begin this morning by reading our text and praying. Hazel, if you could put the the text up, please. And our text comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And so we read, beginning in verse 1. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River, where they camped before crossing. Three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp, giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about a half mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. Then Joshua told the people, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. In the morning, Joshua said to the priests, Lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. And so they started out and went ahead of the people. The Lord told Joshua, 
Today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you, just as I was with Moses. Give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. So Joshua told the Israelites, Come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites ahead of you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand up like a wall. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan, and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark, keep that in mind, touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarathon. And the water below that point flowed on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. This is the word of our Lord. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word through which you minister to us, through which you teach us and guide us and mature us. Will you open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus in the Old Testament this morning? And will you give us the awareness to know his real and immediate, immediate presence here among us now? In this actual very place, Lord. God, will you pour out Jesus on us this morning? Amen. So as I mentioned, this is the account of Joshua leading Israel across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. But as with the other accounts that we've been looking at in this series, uh, we need to zoom the lens way out to really understand this, this passage within the context of the entire Bible. And when we look at the beginning and the end of the Bible, we see a basic story. In the beginning, God created everything and then entered into a state of rest, right? On the seventh day, God rested. Uh, God also designated a special place within creation where he would uh, rule over mankind as a loving father. And they would worship him as loving children, and he would dwell with them. And this was a blessed place because God was there. God's presence was there. And God's command to mankind was to go forth and multiply, filling the earth sort of with the knowledge of God, with the glory of God, and with the worship of God. So the whole earth, you know, theoretically had the potential to become like that blessed garden. I think we can come to that conclusion. But we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the garden was perfect because it wasn't, right? The serpent was in the garden with the ability to influence mankind to rebel against God. And, of course, we read uh, very quickly in the Bible that Adam did give in to that temptation. Now, it's important to realize real quick 
what actually makes a place blessed? What makes a place blessed, as I said, is God's presence there. Eden was a, was a blessed place because God manifested his presence there for blessing. When Moses uh, is by the burning bush and told to take his shoes off, because he's on holy ground, right? The ground is holy because that's where God is. When Israel is traveling through the wilderness, the tent was holy because that's where God was. And the inner room of that was even dangerously holy because that's where God was like, manifesting, you know? So we see something important, that what makes a place special is God's presence, which reveals another important point, that God's ultimate blessing for his people is himself, is his presence. As we read on in the story, Adam and Eve rejected that blessing, and so they were exiled out into the wilderness and away from God's presence. Keep that in mind. They left the garden. They had to go out into the wilderness. They were exiled from the presence of God's rest and, and thrust out into the opposite, which is toil and turmoil. So then the rest of the whole Bible is God promising to restore mankind to its original intention. And working out that restoration, that huge cosmic restoration plan, he works it out through the fallen creation. God's plan can really be summed up in a recurring statement that we find throughout the Bible in various forms. But it says, they will be my people, I will be their God, and I will dwell among them. And so even though mankind was separated from God out in the wilderness... The Old Testament actually shows God's presence coming closer and closer and closer to mankind until the Bible consummates at the end. So he comes first and he starts speaking to mankind, but he reveals himself as the almighty God. Like, this is how most of us probably think about God. Like, the big, powerful God that's way up there. And he comes to mankind. He comes back and he reveals himself as almighty God. And then he comes closer, and he tells his actual name. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This is, I'm telling you my name. He's coming closer. And then he enters into formal relationship with people, kind of like a marriage. And then he actually dwells with people through the tent in the wilderness. And then he dwells with them in the land through the first temple. And then he comes even closer in the incarnate Christ who comes down in flesh and actually walks among people and like looks them in the eyes and talks to them. Sometimes we think that's like as close as he could get, right? Like, man, what if I had the presence of Jesus that close right now? He gets even closer because after he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm coming, Brad. I'm coming, Brad. Don't you worry about me, buddy. He comes even closer because the Holy Spirit, God is not now dwelling externally through a tent, through a temple. He is dwelling within us. He is closer than our own breath. And he comes closer and closer and closer until it finally consummates at the end of the Bible where heaven and earth are united. They come together. They are married. They become one. And God has children 
from every tribe and nation from the whole world. And on that new earth, God dwells with his people. He rules over them in righteousness, and they worship him in joy. They are his people. He is their God, and he dwells among them. With all that in mind, listen to this from just Revelation 21. I love this. Then I saw, which by the way is like at the very end of the Bible, if you're not aware. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's incredible. That's what we look forward to. So, but getting back to our text and our passage and the rest of the story and all that, we see then from all of this that God's plan didn't actually find completion in Israel or the land of Canaan, right? The physical land of Canaan, I think if we look back, we can look back through the, through the Bible, we can look back through history, that physical land of Canaan has not actually been a place of rest since the time that Joshua crossed it with Israel in, until today, right? We, look, we read back in the Old Testament, and there's like a few sporadic years of peace in Israel, but by and large, it's a place of strife. It's not a place of rest, which is interesting because that was God's promise to Abraham. We'll get there. (laughs) That's because God's true promised land still awaits us, as we just read in Revelation, and will be ushered in when Jesus returns. So then we got to ask the question, like, what's up with Israel and Canaan then and all of that? Well, as I've mentioned, that huge cosmic plan that I've been describing is worked out through the fallen creation, and the nation of Israel was the primary tool that God used to bring about this grand plan. You know, we also see, is really interesting, we also see that, like, much of Israel's story, their story in the Bible, and all that happened to them, and the travelings and all that stuff, it's, it's an imperfect reflection of what God was doing on the grand scale the whole time. Uh, the nation of Israel, I think technically it started with Jacob, but I think we can say it started with Abraham. Uh, the nation of Israel began with the, the calling of Abraham, and God made two really interesting promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the night sky. And he promised Abraham a special place where God would dwell with them and bless them. And this land is repeatedly uh, described as a land of rest. And these promises are interesting because they echo God's original intention for man to go forth and multiply, to become numerous, and to live in this perfect relationship with God in a place, right? They will be my people, I will be their God, and I will dwell among them. So when we're looking at God's promise to Abraham, all this stuff, 
it can be kind of confusing, and we have to ask the question, then is it talking about, is God's promise to Abraham talking about the physical land of Canaan, or is it talking about the new heaven, new earth? And the answer is both at the same time. God actually used Israel to bring about Jesus, which brings about the grand cosmic plan. But he also used the story of national Israel to give a sort of imperfect reflection of what he was doing on the grand scale for the entirety of mankind since the garden, both Jew and Gentile. He's the God of all people. So, sure enough, God faithfully multiplied Abraham's physical descendants, and he brought them across. He brought them out of Egypt, as we saw last week. He brought them across a harsh wilderness. He he brought them to the banks of an impassable river. It was harvest time. It was overflowing its banks. And then he certainly brought them into that land led by an appointed champion named Joshua, whose name means, get this, the Lord saves. Like, come on. That's, come on. (laughs) So that's what we're looking at in our text this morning. Joshua bringing Israel into the promised land. But as we read on in the rest of the story, we know that things went terribly, terribly wrong in Canaan. So we can see uh, that it was a smaller context, imperfect reflection of that grand scale. And why do I say that? Well, in the New Testament, we read some really interesting things. We are reminded that Abraham was counted righteous because he had faith. Then we see that Abraham had descendants in the physical sense, but we also see that he had descendants in the spiritual sense, those who also have faith. And we see that not all of the physical descendants of Abraham are also spiritual descendants. There's an overlap, absolutely, but it's, it's not—you get what I'm saying. So we see that not all the physical descendants are also spiritual descendants. And we see this when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and says that they are offspring of Abraham, right? Physical offspring, but he says they're not children. Those are interesting terms. Offspring, what's the difference between an offspring and an actual child, right? You're offspring of Abraham, but you're not children of Abraham. Jesus says that he can raise up children of Abraham from rocks. Paul says in Romans that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then in Galatians 3, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this just means that anyone with genuine faith, Jew or Gentile, is a true child of Abraham, and so they are heirs of the inheritance that was promised to Abraham, namely, to enter into the true promised land and receive the substance of all those blessings, which is... God himself, and the rest that he has enjoyed since creation. They receive the substance of what Canaan reflected imperfectly in shadow form. 
And in Hebrews, we see further confirmation of this, uh, that this true promised land still lays ahead of us, because it says very frankly in Hebrews that Joshua never actually gave them rest. They never found the rest of the promise, because it still lays ahead of us. So the story uh, of Israel and their wanderings through the wilderness as I said, small-scale picture of what God was doing on this grand scale for the entirety of mankind since the garden, who was exiled out into the wilderness, right? Who's traveling to the true Canaan, that new heaven and new earth at the end of this age. But just like Israel at the Jordan, there is an impassable block between us and the land. There is the Jordan River of death, which we all must pass through, unless Jesus comes back, which we all must pass through to enter God's promised land of rest. But just as with Israel, we cannot pass through that deep unless God himself makes a way. So Joshua which again means the Lord saves, pointed forward to Jesus, God's true appointed champion to lead his people. The ark, which contained God's word, look forward to Jesus, God's true word. should also mention that where the ark went, the the presence of God was with the ark, just like the presence of God is with Jesus, the true word. And the priesthood that carried the ark into the river looks forward to Jesus, our great high priest. You see, Jesus is God incarnate, who is both God himself and God's appointed champion to make that way for us so that we can pass through death unscathed and lead us into God's true rest, where we are rewarded with the inheritance the inheritance of children, of God's full presence and his full blessing. And of course, the good news is that Jesus has already passed through the baptism of death. Jesus has already entered the promised land, and he has already secured it for it. Like, it's a done deal. So now all who die in faith walk across that... Walk across that deep and scary place on dry ground like the Israelites, safe from the waters of judgment. And as Jesus hung on the cross, one of the thieves hanging next to him put his faith in Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, the land. Remember, he was in Israel at the time, and he recognized, he said, oh, there's something else, and Jesus has the ability to lead me there. And Jesus told him, today, you will be with me in paradise. Or in other words, today, you will pass through the Jordan on dry ground, and today, you will enter the land that God promised to your forefather. O true child of faith, O true child of Abraham. And this is true of all of our brothers and sisters who die as believers. People of God, 
This is our hope for our loved ones. Did I already read that Revelation verse? I did. Apparently I wanted to read it like 10 times this morning. I'll pass over it. This is our hope. So where does that, but like, you know, where does that leave us who are still, who are still alive? We're still out in the wilderness. We, we are going through, like think of the story of Israel traveling through the wilderness. Like that's us. That's us. So where does that leave us? What do we do? You know, in this life, believers are still wanderers in a foreign land, but we are heading home. And in this wilderness, we all know that we still experience the really harsh realities of desert life. But we also have something very special because we have the Holy Spirit, and we cannot forget that. In Ephesians, Paul says that when we heard the gospel of our salvation and believed in Christ, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's incredible. Praise be to God. The Holy Spirit travels with us in this wilderness. It's different. It, the Old Testament, it's not a one-for-one parallel. That was, an old, that was an imperfect reflection. We have the Holy Spirit actually within us, ministering to us always, and he will ensure that we make it across this desert. Another thing the Holy Spirit does as he travels with us is he brings us a foretaste. We get a, we get a foretaste of our future inheritance. He grabs it from the future and he brings it back into the present. And specifically, the Holy Spirit offers us a foretaste of rest, of that very same rest that God entered into on the seventh day, like he entered a state of rest. You can look into that in Hebrews if you want. He offers us a taste of that now. And it's really great because it's not our own rest that he like, you know, kind of says some kind words and then we're like, all right, I'm comforted. It's his rest. It's something alien to us. It is a divine thing that only God has and he bestows on it, which is great because honestly, most of the time, I don't have, I don't have my own peace, my own joy. I look to the peace of Jesus Christ to be bestowed upon me and I'm telling you he is faithful to do it. I'm getting off track. (laughs) Rest. It's not a coincidence. And it wasn't just like a platitude. When Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That rest of God. We want to enter into that Sabbath day rest We get it through Jesus. Come to me, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. And we can have a taste of our future rest right now. One of my favorite songs is a hymn uh, from the 1800s. The title of it is Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And the first verse reads, 
Beneath the cross of Jesus, with joy I take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. A home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way. From the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. And this hymn is right in line with what we've been talking about. It's characterizing Jesus as the mighty rock in a weary land, a home in the wilderness, a place of rest for the weary traveler. Jesus is an oasis for us where we can find refreshing and sustenance and life in this desert. You know, in the Old Testament wilderness, God sent bread from heaven. And he brought water from the parched desert to sustain Israel on their journey. Those things were pointing to Jesus. The true bread from heaven and the true living water. And he offers that rest and that refreshing and that sustenance to us right now. Incredibly, he offers his own rest to us. His supernatural rest, his divine rest. So how many of us, how many of us are weary from wilderness life? I am. How many of us are beat down and tired from the brokenness of this world? How many of us are weighed down with burdens and worries and fears? How many of us just feel weak and tired? I imagine it's all of us. Now the next question is how many of us are spending time at the oasis every single day drawing life and sustenance from Jesus? As someone who has been called by God to be a shepherd of, uh, uh, you know, it's, or, you know, you can think of like an army, army commander or something, like the troops just took such a big hit. And it's my job to come along the people and point everybody to Jesus. To say, go to the oasis. Go to the well. Draw life. Don't forget. It's too easy to forget. You know, I think there's a very basic reason why Paul was able to rejoice and worship with joy even in the midst of all his pain and all that he suffered. It was because he spent time at the oasis, not the water park in the heights. He spent time with Jesus. So even in the midst of all that pain that Paul went through, he knew the divine rest and peace that just surpasses understanding. Surpasses understanding because we don't know how it could possibly be, why it should be, where it came from. That's because it came from God. I'm going to ask the band and the uh, ministry team to come forward. I'm going to ask a question again. Who here is tired? Who here is weary? Who needs the Holy Spirit to bring them divine, supernatural rest this morning? If that's you, I ask you to come forward and be prayed for. Who is burdened by worry and fear and anxiety. If that's you, come forward and receive rest from that. 
who here is struggling with addiction, come to the living God and receive his rest. Who here, here's a good one, who here has been trying to earn God's love? Who here has been been believing the lie that God cannot or will not love them? Come forward and let the Holy Spirit cast that off of you and receive his rest instead. I could go on for days like this because the fact is that we all need rest. Like, let's be honest, come on. We all need rest. So I'll just throw it out to everyone. If you need the Holy Spirit to minister his rest to you, come forward and be prayed for. Because I'll tell you what, remember what I said about what makes a place blessed, what makes a place holy? It's God's presence. This room right now is a holy and blessed place because the living God is here right now. God is here to speak comfort to our burdened souls. This is really the functional end of the sermon because it's really, we're just coming to this point where we can actually act upon what we just heard. We can drink deeply from the oasis so that we can have the rest of God. God minister his rest to us and he can give us what we need so badly. We all now understand that we are God's people traveling through the wilderness together toward the promised land. We all understand that in this desert life, there is toil, there is pain, and there is suffering. We understand that Jesus is our life, our sustenance, our comfort, and our rest. We all understand that the Holy Spirit is here right now, calling us to simply seek him and ask. The only thing left to do is for us to decide if we want that comfort or not. If you want that comfort, I ask you to come forward. So I end by appealing to us all with the words of Psalm 95. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's head back into worship. Please come forward for prayer if you need it. Spirit like water
to the Lord's table this morning, we see yet another layer of meaning in this meal as we look at the bread and the cup. Jesus said that he was the true bread from heaven to feed God's people in the wilderness. And when we look at the cup, we see true drink. But this this drink isn't just water that, like, it'll keep you alive, but it just kind of gets you by. It's wine or juice. We use juice here. But the point is, it's a symbol of joy and celebration. Because in this wilderness, God does not give us meager rations. He feeds his children well. He gives abundantly. He pours out his grace on us and causes our cups to run over when we simply look to him in faith. And at this table, that's exactly what happens. The meal is not magic. The, the, the meal in itself is nothing special. Just like the land of Canaan, the meal is special because Jesus himself meets us at the table by the Holy Spirit, and he feeds our souls and he grows our faith. So let's open the table with the words of Jesus and then come forward to meet him at his table and be fed. This week, come, please come forward when you are ready. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then take the meal when you are ready. So as they were eating, 
Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, the promised land. Mm.